For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello again. This week we're going to be talking about fabrics. How much do you know about what's in your clothes? Because I reckon there's just a heap of confusion around this. Often when I give a talk, I'll challenge everyone to do a little experiment where you pinch the fabric of whatever you're wearing on top, your jumper, your shirt, and try and guess what it's made of. And then look at the label and see if you're shocked. And you know what? We're often shocked, including me. It's just so easy to think that what you're wearing is silk when it's viscose or that it's pure cotton when actually it's a blend. We're not in the habit of reading labels. And I think, well, there's a few reasons. One is that we're not teaching about materials and textiles very much in schools these days. Another is that brands don't tend to talk too much about fabrics, not least because so many of them tend to be unsustainable synthetics. And I don't know, we're just used to the look of stuff rather than talking about the feel and the performance. But I love this. It's I really love nerding out on this stuff around how a textile's made and what do they do? And also, what are their impacts? Because when we think about making a more sustainable fashion industry, textiles are enormously important. They make a huge difference, whether you're a designer or a customer. A lot of what I've learned over the years comes from Future Fabrics Expo. It's an event in London that showcases best practice materials. And I'm friends with the founder of the organisation that's run it. Her name is Nina Morenzi. If you want to listen to her, she's been on the podcast episode 73. We'll share a link. And Nina actually has also helped me a lot with my upcoming book about the future of fashion, making introductions to some of the exciting new innovators in materials. Anyway, it's not just Nina who works there. This week's guest, former fashion designer, academic Amanda Johnson, does a load of work behind the scenes on education on this topic. So she was the obvious person to take us through a kind of, I'm thinking of it like an update crammer on what's happening in the world of sustainable textiles today. Actually, if you, another one for you to listen to if you're into this is, I'm not sure of the number, but I'll share a link, the episode we did last series with Cindy Rhodes, a deep dive on recycled polyester. So with Amanda, we're going to be trying to answer some of the popular questions that I'm often asked, starting with how do you choose the most sustainable textiles? It's really difficult, but there are ways. <laughs> And then why is the fashion industry still so dependent on polyester? And why is that a problem? Then what's the story with MMCs, man-made cellulosics, and their new gen feedstocks? Another one you can listen to, we'll share links for all these, is the one we did with Nicole Rycroft from Canopy, all about how we can make viscose from stuff that isn't trees, especially in ancient and endangered forests. And then what else? We're talking about biotech materials. Are they going to start to take over? What are they? How do they make them? And also, what do we think about the boom in vegan leather alternatives? Now, I did this interview with Amanda before I talked with last week's guest, Emma Hackinson, about cruelty-free fashion. But you'll hear her say the same thing, that this idea that cow skins that we use to make leather are essentially a waste product of the meat industry is false. Leather is in fact a co-product of the cattle industry and it's hugely valuable in its own right. But what about these alternatives? Are they essentially plastic? 
So Future Fabrics Expo is back this June in London on the 26th to 28th. And there's a link in the notes if you want to get your ticket. Or if you're not there, you can check out the website, which has heaps of resources. Now, let's hear from Amanda Johnson. Amanda Johnson, welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me in here because this is like a full treasure trove of Future Fabrics wonder. We're sitting, will you tell us where we are? We're sitting in uh, the the Sustainable Angles uh, studio, which is where we keep all of our fabrics over in West London. And uh, if you were here, you could see that we have got rails and rails of uh, fabrics sorted out by, we've got about almost 5,000 fabrics here, sorted through various different fibre categories, everything diverse from natural materials, right through to recycled synthetics, every different kind of material you can possibly think of that constitutes best practice sustainable materials. Now... Before we begin our interview proper, I thought we'd just do a fun thing because I couldn't resist. And so (laughs) I've whipped around the racks and there are hundreds of cards here. And I've selected four different materials that are just very interesting and very different. And I thought you could just chat us through them. Okay, in front of you, you've got a piece of bark cloth. Oh, you have. This is a super interesting material. So it's an East African tapper cloth from the South Pacific as well. And it's non-woven. So they're taking it from very fibrous barks of a particular species of tree, crushing them, working them to create this sort of very natural kind of non-woven. And it's got very, very particular properties. Mm. This kind of even can be used for interiors as well as accessories. I thought it was so charismatic that, and I also love that that is a heritage process, but it can now be, that we're looking at it now in a fashion context, but it's got this beautiful history. Yeah. Obviously fashion just loves. (laughs) Rule is, oh, we always want that kind of like, we want that thing that captures the eye and the imagination and the heart. And I think these materials that you've picked out do that. They've got this tactility. They've got this kind of wow factor to them that people don't necessarily expect with sustainable materials. The next one is an infill material. I don't know if they're working with or is being used by Max Mara. That's correct. So um, Max Mara, very famous for their camel hair coats, been producing them for decades. And of course, the whenever you make a garment, of course, there's some waste. So they're collecting this, this particular company, Imbatex, uh, collect all the waste and they pull it to pieces and, and, and make this beautiful, fluffy, super warm filler that they then return back to Max Mara and Max Mara use it as filler for their cube collection of coats. So you've got a full circularity going on there and keeping really valuing that fibre. It's super expensive anyway, camel hair. So why would you not use every last scrap of it? And it's also nice that they're doing that. They're really genuinely closing their own loop. Yes, it, to me, it's like a really ideal example of true collaboration between two specialists to produce something that is unique and beautiful. Okay, this one is a fish leather and it's bright red, isn't it? <laughs> it's a giant fish called the piruku, and it lives in South America. And it was an endangered species before the Brazilian government put together a program to support uh, reinvigorating the fish stocks. And the company that produces it is focused not only on the material qualities being sustainable, but also supporting the communities that depend upon this fish for their foodstuff. So since this program, which I think kicked off around 2017, uh, the fish stocks for this particular species have gone up by over 400%. 
What interested me so much about this is it's really thick and leather-like. And when we say fish leather, I would imagine that might be really thin and weak and need to be on some plastic backing, but not the case. Not the case at all. It's really, really durable. And we've seen amazing products made out of it. In fact, Rick Owens made the jacket that Rihanna wore on the cover of American Vogue last year. It looked spectacular. I mean, they're all responsibly tanned as well. And the last one of the swatches that I pulled out that I'd love to get you to describe is this thing called Refibra. Okay, so this is actually Tencel technology. So uh, Lensing are the fibre producer who produce best practice regenerative cellulosics. What we mean by that is they're viscose type materials, but these are produced in a best practice way. Now, usually the feedstock is wood. Mm. Now, we can all imagine that there are inherent problems with the feedstock as regards ancient and endangered forests. So Lensing always use certified wood feedstock. But this is really interesting because it's using that technology, but replacing 30% of the feedstock with recovered cotton, which could be from pre-consumer, meaning the cuttings, or it could be post-consumer, gathering t-shirts, jeans, and actually putting 30% of that feedstock in with the wood. Because cellulosics is just referring to the cellulose structure. It could be from virgin material, but it also could be from recycling cotton, which is also a cellulose-based material. Exactly, exactly. So tree pulp is a cellulose material, as is cotton. So when we start to sort of think about, you know, what the potential is for that particular material category, which is a growing category, by the way, then we could look at technologies that will encourage any type of feedstock Thank you for giving us this little snapshot on some of the materials that are changing the game. I wanted to start with trying to anchor why materials are so important to our culture and to humanity and history, and yet we seem to be so ignorant about them. I've pulled out this quote, which I actually got it from Seetal Solanke. She's an academic. She's the author of a book called Why Materials Matter. I watched a lecture. She, I've met her. She's great. She came to Australia. But I watched a lecture she gave online and she had this slide. And I thought, did you say this? But it's actually a quote from George Monbiot, who is the much-loved Guardian nature writer. But I think it's just a very interesting starting point. He says, we are often told we are materialists. But to me, it seems we're not materialistic enough. We have a disrespect for material. We use it quickly and carelessly. And if we genuinely were materialistic people, we would understand where materials come from and where they go to. Beautiful. Absolutely. And yes, George, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, no, lovely. And, and you know, Seatel's book's incredible. And we sort of developed that tagline further and we go, materials really matter. And the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, in fact, put together some data and they said that when it comes to fashion products, around 80 or even 90% of a product's impact, both environmentally and socially, can be traced back to the material. So the very materiality of the stuff that embraces us, that we all enjoy, that we all des- that we all need, is critical. Yes, materiality is so important to us and yet so undervalued. We just don't know enough about where our stuff comes from and where it ends up. And why do you think we don't? I think we've been disconnected from what it takes to make stuff. I mean, it's not that many generations ago that, you know, people used to be able to see their own supply chains because they were local. And since globalization, of course, crisscrossing around the globe, our supply chains, I mean, most brands can't even trace their own supply chains. So that's where the disconnection comes from. 
still a lot of people that we speak to at the expo don't know that a regenerated cellulosic is made from trees. They go, what? How do you make this fabric out of trees? How does that happen? And so there's that huge disconnection. If you don't know where your stuff comes from, then you can't make informed choices, you know? The other thing that stood out for me from that quote is just this idea of materialism being something to be ashamed of, that we are rampant consumers who can't Mm. stop buying and acquiring and that our materialistic culture is rotten to the core, actually. He would think, wouldn't he? I think I did. Yes. No, well, uh, well, it really is. We need to slow down for sure. Somewhere we've lost sight of the definition of what material is, though. I mean, that's Mm. what he's saying, isn't it? That actually we should be delighted by the fabric of the stuff around us and the materials that we live with. uh, There's a disconnect there, isn't there? Mm, Very definitely. And I think once the more you know about them, the more you can take pleasure in them and value them. I think it's a loss of value, essentially, that's kind of driving, obviously, chasing the cheap needle around the planet. A lot of brands have pushed the the price of what we clothe ourselves with, you know, artificially low. So therefore we kind of think, well, if you can buy a t-shirt for the same price as a sandwich, then it's clearly not of any value. Why repair it? Why, you know, try to keep it longer? So that's all at the heart of our issues. But I think with materiality, the more you find out about it, the more you can make informed choices and, and feel proud of what you're buying. I think that's a really important thing. When we were looking at the examples I'd pulled off the racks, you were talking about how something feels. When we think about fabrics, textiles and their joy, and actually education around them, I think, the hand feel is really important. And I'm thinking when I say education around them, there's a lot of people who can't tell the difference between polyester and cotton just by touch alone. So that is about being taught when you explain, yeah. feel for the plasticiness yes. or the heat or the cool, you can feel it, but maybe we're not teaching it. I worked for many, many years in design and you kind of get trained through practice and being able to recognise both through touch and actually all your senses when you think about it. You know, putting across your skin and even the smell. Think about those brands, which I won't mention, when you walk into a shop and the overwhelming smell is of petrochemicals. So you know straight away, use your use all your senses. Because yes, you can get amazing technologies that can make you believe that a polyester has a cottonish kind of feel. But actually, when you come to iron it, it's going to have a really low melt point. <laughs> you know, all of these things. And that's about the experience of it. It might look great. It might be in the best fabby seasonal colour. But when it comes to laundering it, ironing it, whatever, and wearing it, it will feel very different from cotton. One of the delights is touching something lovely. Of course, we know that. We know that from just our existence of being in the world. But I learned to like fabrics, textiles is the right word. I always say fabric from my mum, who is an amazing sewer, who still is an amazing sewer. Hi, mum. But I always remember her touching linen and touching wool and saying, this is felted or this is boiled wool. I can hear her saying that. Yeah. You know, just one of my favorites. Yeah, so nice, isn't it? Just in between. I'm doing this with my hands. (laughs) Or even corduroy. These textures are very, I think they're a bit emotional, nostalgic, maybe. Totally. And very much anybody who works in textiles will use that kind of language. But now, of course, we're layering it up with the language of sustainability and what all of that tactile, uh, those tactile attributes you're talking about, what what that means insofar as making good fibre choices, positive fibre choices. You know that, you know, the attributes of cotton, for example, are that it's going to be super absorbent. Whereas something that looks a bit like cotton, but is polyester, 
It's not going to absorb anything. So it's a very different touch and wear experience and, of course, sustainability impact experience as well. On the way here, there was a guy in front of me on the tube, on those escalators, and I noticed him because he reminded me he reminded me of Rishi Sunak from the back. And he had this really sharp suit on. And I thought, he's a bit Sunak in this sharp, expensive suit. <laughs> and then I was just behind him and I could see the shine on the suit. And I was like, it's not expensive, it's polyester. And I could actually see yeah. the, the shiny plastic weave you could see it yeah and I thought it's so in I, I probably wouldn't have noticed if I wasn't going to see you <laughs> but you can actually see the way things have been constructed I think I'm going to challenge you listeners if you're not yet immersed in the world of materiality when it comes to textiles just look more closely do it now look at your curtains look at your whatever you're wearing and just see what you can notice about how the warp and weft, that's the way things are woven or the threads or the fuzz coming off the mm. threads up here, right? You can see more than you know. You can really see it also, a really good example is with acrylic sweaters. So most of our high streets are full of acrylic and it is one of, out of all of the synthetic fibres, it's one of the most toxic. But of course, because it's so cheap, we're seeing it flooding all levels of the market actually. But you can see a real difference if you take a wool sweater and an acrylic sweater, one in each hand, the weight difference alone will tell you, because acrylic's light, wool is a little heavier. You know, it's a complex fibre wool. It can take in water, so it can hold water, but it can also at the same time repel water. It's, it's quite an incredible fibre. And the way it keeps you warm with its structure. So it's got this really dense structure. So it's going to weigh more, first of all. Look at that acrylic sweater. It's got a little glitter on it. Like you say, a little kind of Yuck. shine on it <laughs> that just tells you this is, and then smell it. And, you know, then you will be able to tell the difference before you even look in the mm. label. So, and, and I think we've all got used to going, oh, it's a wool jumper. No, if it costs 20 quid, it's acrylic or some such very, you know, proportion of synthetic fibres. And the, the wool one will be massively more expensive. And we're, and last year, well, depends how you use it, actually. I was going to say last year longer. It. The acrylic could last after forever. It. <laughs> Possibly, and they're not even biodegrade when you bury it. Yes, you do. This comes back to also clothing culture. And it's, yes, your wool will, if you look after it really, really well, it will serve you forever and ever and ever. And you might have to darn it a bit, but that's, hey, that's just caring for something. And I think we have lost that. We've lost that kind of thing. Oh my goodness, this wool or this cashmere sweater has got a little moth on. I need to just darn it up and I need to pack it away and out of season. And you don't even need to wash wool that often. You can actually hang it in the shower and it will shed odour and dirt by itself mm. because the fibre structure is so extraordinary. Amanda, tell us where this comes from in you. What's your link and background to this? And when did you start getting interested in fabrics? Um, well, I suppose I was always really switched on by fashion. I always drew a lot as a kid, painted as a kid. My mum was just, I think like a lot of mums and grands uh, were back in the day, used to knit and sew and hand repair and do all of those things, as did my grandmother. So you've grown up with that. That was a culture. It's a family culture of having things made, seeing materials and just really enjoying all of those things that we spoke about before, touch, tactility, colour, pattern and the sort of fascination of all of that. Yeah. You grew up in Manchester. Yeah. What about your career start then? <laughs> I went and studied fashion design at Kingston University. Oh, and Kingston. Yeah. So that's where I did my degree. And then went straight out into the industry, as we all did then, and became a freelance designer, 
working for many different companies, all from high street upwards. When, what very decade? Varied. I'm going back to the 80s, 90s. At that point, the industry was speeding up. Globalization was kicking in. And I got started to get very sick of the hamster Did wheel you? before I got into education. And started to work on implementing uh, sustainability into the curriculum with Dillis Williams at the Centre for Sustainable Fashion. So we worked together quite a bit. And that just really lit my imagination again. It gave me a reason to be in fashion that I'd previously fallen out of love with. It's common, I feel like I've heard this yeah. from quite a few <laughs> of the people that we mutually know. Okay, I want to talk about why we need to change. I told you I was going to throw this at you before we press record, Amanda, but... There have been a couple of much-discussed reports by an environmental campaigning organisation called Changing Markets. And everyone's been talking about them for the last couple of years. One of them is called Fossil Fashion, and one of them is called Synthetics Anonymous, the cues in the title. And it's essentially about linking our addiction to virgin polyester to the fossil fuel industry, which is, I think it's indisputable. I'm going to just share with you a couple of lines from this report, because I think it's quite good to see the history of this. So essentially... I'm going to read this out. While cotton has historically been the dominant material for use in textile production, over the last few decades, it's lost much of its market share to plastic-based fibres such as polyester. And then it goes on to explain that the first synthetic fibres started in the early 20th century, 1940s, DuPont introduced nylon, blah, 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 blah. But then it says, and this is very interesting when we look at how the numbers have expanded recently. While global fibre production of manufactured fibres increased fourfold over 44 years, synthetic fibre, largely dominated by polyester, knocked it out of the park. That increased by nine times in the same period. So essentially, we are just making truckloads of polyester. Polyester accounts for 50% or so of global fibre demand and is increasing ever more, which is crazy. It is actually the same polymer as your single-use plastic water bottle PET. Polyethylene tetraphthalate is the same stuff as your polyester gym stuff or your fleece, your polyester fleece. It's exactly the same polymer, just formed differently. Just wearing plastic. <laughs> You're just wearing plastic. And as you quite rightly pointed out, it's very obvious the connections between using a petrochemical to actually create the, your fibres out of and the climate crisis. You know, we do desperately need to decouple from oil, both as a raw material source in whatever the product is, or as an energy source. And that has been obviously shone a spotlight on in the news right now. We're seeing that across the board because its contributions to climate change are absolutely undoubted, you know. So we need to get rid of the toxic material that we thought was so brilliant. In a few short decades, it's become the, a massive, massive problem. We probably won't, we won't see it cleaned up in our lifetime and we need to stop making virgin PET completely and just concentrate on cleaning up the pollution that's already there. But it's also, we've made shows before that talk about the problem of plastic microfiber pollution of the oceans, but why else is it not ideal for the fiber basket to be so dominated by one thing? And then cotton's the next one, it's like nearly a quarter. Mm. So then you've got a very small amount of space for all the other fabric innovations or old fabrics like silk and wool, right? Yeah. Which I always remember seeing that that was like less than 1%. I mean, it's a tiny, tiny slice of global fibre demand, although very high value fibres. And it's basically, it means that what we've done is we've put all our eggs in two very toxic baskets. <laughs> and that's counter actually to natural systems. Nature 
thrives on diversity, biodiversity. And so therefore we should be learning from nature because that manages to sort everything out by itself and looking at those systems and thinking, okay, now why are we trying to force the natural world upon which we all depend into monocultures and intensive systems, which is what we, we tend to do. It's like, oh, something's really successful. We want to eat this. Let's make loads, loads, loads more of it and push everything else out which is counter to diversity and biodiversity. That makes so, so much sense to me. Thank you. I loved how you explained that. Do you, do you want to talk about the fact that some categories are expanding rapidly, albeit if you compare them to the <laughs> terrible monster that is Polly, they're not a, yet as big a pie chart segment. What's happening with viscose? You call them MMC. Yeah, so they they either referred to as regenerated cellulosics. So it means there's been a man-made process that's changed the cellulose base, but it still remains a cellulose fibre. It's just converted, or MMCs. So you'll hear of them referred to in that way, but but more commonly viscose or rayon type materials, which, as we said before, the feedstock depends on cellulose, which is usually trees. It's a very exciting area because uh, just talking about the tensile refibra technology as well, what the potential is for altering that feedstock using a similar sort of processing, but bringing in things like agricultural waste, which, you know, for time immemorial has been burnt on the field, creating again CO2 issues. And the farmers do this because it's quite quick and they see that as rubbish. Now, if you can create that into a valuable resource and feed it into a, a, a fiber system, you can create a valuable textile fiber. So that's a new expanding area. And regenerated cellulosics are expanding year on year. So the demand for them is growing. It's where we're getting our feedstocks for them, which is the critical thing about making intelligent and responsible choices there. One of the questions I always get asked is, is leather alternative more sustainable than leather. Of course, we can talk about, it depends on your values. If you are a vegan, you're going to choose the leather alternative. But I think the confusion comes around the content of the material, what's really in it. Is there plastic in all of it? How much plastic? Exactly. Um, major questions, because obviously, if you're going to purchase a vegan leather, a lot of them very uh, high petrochemical content, in which case they're not going to be durable. They're not going to last you very long. You're going to be press and repeat purchasing. And so therefore, people are going, well, I really want leather because I want to be able to pass it down the family and, and everybody enjoy it. And I want to invest in leather. And, and therefore, you know, we certainly don't say that we demonize leather. We have very few leather suppliers because they are the ones that are actual local, organically, regeneratively farmed supply chains using very responsible, usually natural tanning and dyeing systems. So there's not many of them around. They do exist. And your Hindmarsh did an amazing project she with did. regeneratively farmed leather. So if you want leather, then I would go that route. And you want to make the investment and you want to buy something like, I don't know, a mulberry bag or an anya bag or something like that that's got that whole story wrapped up and you want to pass it down to your daughter and your daughter's daughter. Great, go for it. If you're very uncomfortable with, with buying leather, there are plenty of substitutes around that are really coming to commercial availability. Are they mostly PU and what is PU? 
So PU being basically the petrochemicals we talked about earlier. That's polyurethane, exactly. Plastic. So (laughs) it's usually used as a coating. And what we find that even on vegan base materials, there's still a thin coating of PU to create that weather resistance and durable finish that's usually required. But they're they're getting the percentages down really low now. So they're trying to reduce it. Because I think there's been controversy around the fruit leathers or the... Eggs. Uh, the, I mean, Frumat is one. Apple. Yes. I don't know whether veggie or, or if you say veggie, but the one from grapes. The grape mark, yeah. I don't know. Have they got plastic in a bit? Are they they trying have to, yeah. a bit. And it's often they can be super cagey and we keep pressing them on. Um, and we've taken materials out of the collection because of that, because we've tightened our percentage of allowable materials even tighter. So it's 15% or less now of a so-called not very sustainable material Mm. because we do recognize that particularly when you're recycling mechanically for example you're shredding the fiber it makes it shorter you might need to put a little bit of virgin fiber in to strengthen it to make it viable with a lot of these very seductive ideas of using fruit to make Mm. a leather alternative they have to bind it with something it's got to have some glue to hold it together and that is plastic Exactly. A lot of cases. Well, so sometimes it depends how the the composite, how all the things within it are actually held together. I mean, Mirren by Natural Fibre Welding, for example, is a, another composite, which is taking lots and lots of waste materials, bits of cork, bits of rice husk, bits of all manner of stuff, grinding it all up, and they're binding it up together with a 100% bio-based. It's a, a latex mixture. It's a proprietary mixture, but they say it's absolutely zero petrochemicals whatsoever. So it's all natural-based binders. Mm. And and that is now fully commercially available. So it, it, it's that's the one with no PU in. And just before we leave this topic, I wanted to ask you about this phrase which you shared with me before that I said, well, the argument is that leather is a byproduct of the meat industry. And you said, well, it isn't. It's a co-product. Yes. So most tanneries will say, oh, yes, it's Spanish leather, it's Italian. But actually... The skin is coming usually from South America and will have been part of intensive farming, farming for meat, as you know, and we've all seen the clearing of the Amazon rainforest and the huge swathes of rainforest, usually a lot of which are ancient and endangered. You cannot get those back quickly. They represent the lungs of the planet. We all depend on them. And the sort of intensive farming of which, you know, the meat and the skin are valuable co-products. I mean, you can't sort of say well, you'd throw away the skin because that wouldn't happen. But they argue that the value of the skin is only less than 10% or something. And so it's just, it is waste and it would be wasted. I don't know. Do you think that's not true? I, I just kind of think, well, but you're getting, we're getting skins. Europe is getting skins from South America. So they're not, it's you worth know, billions of dollars anyway well, as a market. Exactly. Yeah. So this thing about, oh, but yeah, be thrown away anyway. It's not really worth anything. I'm sorry, it is. An animal skin is worth a lot of money. It might not be as much as the meat, but the, that animal is part of the same system. It is such a hot potato, the whole sort of leather versus non leather versus leather alternative world, which, as you know from visiting the expo, is huge. It's exploded massively and it's attracted incredible investment. I think Materials Innovation Initiative said, they released a report a couple of years ago that said since 2015, there's been around 1.29 billion US dollars worth of investment in that that material category alone. Leather alternatives. Leather alternatives, yeah. So it is it is attracting the investment like crazy. And we have seen, because of that, as you know, surfacing, coming to market, a whole raft of different leather alternatives. And they're all very, very different. They've all got something different to offer. No one of them is the silver bullet. 
they will contribute to the diversification of this durable material category. One more question that I feel like you'd have insights on would be around faux fur. So, oh, this one gets me. I feel like faux fur is just a load of plastic fibres waiting to blow away into the ocean. (laughs) It totally is. So you can all just imagine what that would look like from if anybody's owned a faux fur jacket and most faux fur... You can see it falling off. Exactly, is acrylic. The demon petrochemical, well, they're all demon, but acrylic is, is particularly bad. And that's what makes up most faux fur or one of the petrochemical materials. And so, yeah, they are the backing and the fur itself is just a demon, as you say, demon fur. Have you seen any purely natural alternatives that are actually persuasive? Yes, we have amazing ones from a fabulous uh, company in Germany. They actually make the most gorgeous teddy bears out of them as well. But it's basically, it's a woven backing and they are using animal fibres. So that could be alpaca, it could be mohair, which are all from responsible programmes. And so they're not killing the animal. They're just harvesting the fibre and they're using that in much in the way you'd make a carpet. They're doing it like usually on an organic cotton backing and the beautiful colours. So they are really spectacular. They're not cheap, but they're neither as real animal. They're less expensive than a real animal skin. They're really, really gorgeous. And the colours are, are really fashion forward as well. They're also even doing things like linen fur. They will actually create a linen fur or a cotton fur or whatever. So From the super, texture of yeah, so creating it's, a fur-like texture. I've seen it. It's yeah. And we've seen fur. really exciting that it's coming. Very soon we're going to show it at the next expo is uh, Spiber. We spoke about them earlier. So they're, they're making the they're fermenting from the gene of, a, identified the gene of a Spiber to create a filament which is silk-like but now they've made so many creative different applications i'm so looking forward to showing it they've made a fur they've made a faux fur and right now because it's literally just been launched it's going to be super expensive but it's what i said if it becomes brands get on board and enough people want to use it there's demand for it the price will go right down Let's talk about innovation. So (laughs) when we were planning this podcast, I was like, I don't want to make it about innovation because that word to me has become this corporate (laughs) jargon word that everybody sticks in a report. It's just, to me, slightly meaningless. But actually, of course, it started like all good cliches with something very important and very meaningful. I Mm. think we just lost the way with it a bit. Obviously, that's the area you work in. How would we define innovation if we were to strip the jargon out of it and really consider it as is it transformation what is it what does it mean like to Mm. me it just means nothing I don't have a dictionary in front of me so tell me how you think (laughs) we should define it and how we can make it meaningful it's such an interesting question isn't it I love that you drill down into the actual pedantics of words because we're often look at it we plaster innovation all over the place I'm sitting next to a massive banner that says innovation (laughs) while I'm saying innovation means nothing I would just say that in your world it means something. Yes. On the head of a sort of brand report, I feel like it means as little as sustainability. And remember, I was the first sustainability editor. Yeah. So, you know, Indeed. these words that yeah. started off as being, I think, you know what it was? I think we've lost the specificity around them. 
and it's just too they're just overused yeah. people just give themselves titles don't they i'm the head of innovation mm. for my cafe and what, and I'm do, what i'm doing is really innovative and we're like yeah but how how does that i'm the head I of passion think... at my organization <laughs> but but obviously it does have meaning and since i'm sitting next to it as a sign what what's the real meaning of it and how would you define it as someone trying to make change happen well, I think, you know, yes, you're right. You need to define how that word is deployed, what it refers to. There's a business consultant from Harvard, Clayton Christensen, and he came up with what I think is a sort of really good system for categorizing innovation. And we certainly use this in the way that, that we speak about innovations and describe them and break them down. So, you know, one was incremental innovations. The next level was radical innovations. And of course, people can call themselves radical as well. Mm -hmm. They may not a be, radical but activist. radical, radical activists, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also disruptive innovations. And the way that we sort of define each one of those is the incremental ones are, um, they're the small improvements. They're the changes to existing methods, to an already existing, or maybe a traditional product actually, that represent efficiencies very good from a sustainability perspective, in that way enhancing the sustainability attributes of an existing material or provide extra benefits or add value. Examples of that would be treatments or techniques that enhance the existing properties in some way or replace what's maybe a toxic additive or coating with a bio one. We're seeing lots in that sort of area and lots in dyes. So you're enhancing the existing attributes. Take some little steps and make improvements gradually, maybe. Yeah. So you can refer to those as innovations, but they are, I suppose, they're the first level. We have a great one at the expo, the Swedish company called BST. So petrochemical coatings going, why the hell are we putting petrol on top of the surface of a material for uh, moisture wicking or moisture repellency and such like? And they were chemists. They figured out we can replace this with algae-based, not petrochemical. And they do, and they perform exactly the same. And they can be plug and play into an existing system. So they've already created a massive impact because all sports gear needs these treatments and coatings to perform in the way that is expected. So that's what I would call that's a fabulous incremental innovation. I was going to say, that's, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, amazing, But right? I mean, that could be seen as radical because they're shaking things up. What would you define then as radical? So the radical ones are those that involve technologies and systems that possibly improve maybe transparency or make products and science more accessible. Yeah. You know, a great example of that is sort of all of the digital innovation around tracking fibres. Oh, like fibre trace. Yeah, like fibre trace, exactly, which is becoming year on year more and more crucial. And then you have got the disruptive innovations that completely reimagine. The so whole system. Like the so it's a whole, different way of operating in Totally different way, making, incorporating not pre-existing feedstocks and also the way you're manufacturing. So that can be included. You're thinking about different polymers, growing existing material uh, systems like root structures and forming them into materials, 3D printing those. So completely different manufacturing processes and feedstocks together, like just completely reimagining the whole thing. So those are the ones that everybody swoons over and goes, I can't wait to wear the mycelium root trainers or whatever it is, because they really, I think they really represent to people, oh my God, a brand new material landscape future, you know? And I find that very seductive, but we also have to be 
realistic that many of the most dazzling, exciting new propositions might just stay in the lab. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I mean, we do have to be realistic about what will genuinely change our materials landscape for the better. And that's purely down to engagement with brands because those innovators desperately need partnerships with brands and the investment you just spoke about in order to bring something to market. And it can be millions and very long long timelines between actually seeding an idea, making a test case that works and getting it to make commercial impact. And then you have to make it cheap enough that brands will or more brands will use it or swap out what their original thing was. Exactly. So we are seeing some really exciting examples from the luxury brands taking on board. So they're providing that, look, this this can be the future. But of course, we're talking about with any new innovation, doesn't matter whether it's technological, we'll all remember, I'm sure, how much the first Apple computer cost, um, you know, pro rata. But as soon as you go into mass production, that's where a positive impact can happen and the price comes right Mm. down. So, you know, right now we've all seen the MA's handbag that was done as a limited edition using Mycoworks Mycelium, stratospheric price bracket, and and also the Balenciaga Mycelium coat as well, which again was a limited edition at at a very, very, very high price. But they just prove that it's possible to make the product and it's possible to create desirability for the product. And then, then it's onwards if you can get the investment and the brand interest. What have you come across that has really captured your imagination? So colorifics technology is is really, really incredible. And they have got a proof of concept. They've done a project with Pangaea, for example. I mean, okay, at the moment, it's a limited palette, but they're in development consistently and they have the technology and the machinery to apply these at a commercial level. So we've got the test case study, we know it works, and they are in completely benign. And you're talking about then a wastewater that comes off that, that is not, you don't then have to get rid of all of that effluent, which is a huge problem in the fashion industry with all manner of processes. That's biotech. Bacterial dye, yeah. Mimicking colours from nature. Yeah, they're mm. growing, they're replicating colours taken from nature, yeah. Again, at your event last year, I chaired a panel about algae and it was riveting about how different companies are using algae as alternatives for finishings, not necessarily dyes, but we were talking before about moisture wicking, which has been previously petrochemicals. But also there was, oh, Jessica Giannotti. Yes. Who is a very interesting, quite a small organisation. I don't know if she's a one woman show, but she is a researcher based in Scotland and she is using seaweeds and algae to make dyes. Exactly. A beautiful. And there's, you know, she's one of many. There's loads of them dotted all around the world, again, using the algae dye stuffs. And as you said, small scale at the moment, but the technology and the learning and the research behind it is really, really relevant. So you pull all this together and you get the right kind of investment behind it. You know, we can be looking at really, I suppose, a future where our dye stuffs will either be bacterially generated from algae or waste food. We have amazing innovators that are doing waste food stuff 
dies. Fabulous one in Japan called Toyoshima. Really gorgeous. I remember actually seeing pictures. Yeah. Really beautiful. And Jessica, I just uh, recently bumped into at Premier Vision and I got uh, got her to do me a special scarf because I love plankton. So she's got this beautiful (laughs) plankton and it's it's based on a, a silk, which is sourced from ours, you know, from one of our suppliers. So these are all super exciting and they are poised to be commercially relevant. You did a project with Suzanne Lee a little while ago, didn't you, about collaborating on some educational stuff around biotech and how we understand biofabrication and the differences between definitions. It's so interesting. It feels like a brave new world. Do you think it's going to change things? It really, really is. I think it is. I mean, we certainly, we have a lovely knowledge partnership with them where we feature all of their research and try to demystify it and get people excited by it. What does this material mean contextually in the biosphere? That's really important. Not just, oh, love it because it's a, you know, it's a mad novelty. I mean, we're all fashion people. We get turned on by that, I know. But we also do need to understand where its positive impacts lie. Why do we want it? Why should we be changing? I mentioned you know? Suzanne Lee. Would you be able to just tell us who she is? Yes. So Suzanne Lee is an amazing woman. In fact, Cyril Gutch from Parley refers to her as a biotechnology wizard, <laughs> but she did her research project at Central St. Martin's. So that's where she she studied and created BioCouture, which was then the kombucha grown Growing leather. a leather-like alternative in the yeah. lab. And she did a TED talk, or I've seen a talk about this anyway, we'll find a link where she explains how fearful she was about going out in the rain because it wasn't stable. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so it's gone through all of these iterations and there were some amazing pieces uh, made from it. So that was her sort of central St. Martin's project. And still loads of students of mine today just find her recipe and go, oh my God, I can grow, you know, she keeps a, a recipe open source for people to experiment in their own kitchens. Does she? So my students love going off and doing that and seeing how they can tweak the recipe to make it fit what they want because they've got to be able to sew it and stuff. But she was determined that you would be able to grow materials. Yes, that was her thing. She got really excited by how we could use biology in a responsible way to grow the materials of the future. And of course, that is now coming to pass. Her kind of vision is really coming to pass, not just through, you know, that type of the kombucha grow material, but through a myriad of different grow materials. We spoke about mycelium before. You can actually train that to grow into different shapes. You can compact it. There's all manner of things that you can do with this material, give it the right conditions. And and obviously, respecting it as a natural material. You're growing. It's about sort of designing in harmony with nature, I suppose, rather than extractive, which is what we've always done before. You raise such an interesting point, which is, have we yet, and I think the answer is clearly no, given due consideration to the ethics of uh, farming and harvesting these natural materials that we hold up as the great future hope, but have we considered what it will be like to grow them en masse or to extract them without care potentially from nature. I, I thought about this when I did a a podcast about seaweed mm. with Sam Elsom, who's using seaweed to create a supplement which is fed to livestock to reduce their methane levels. But <laughs> you've got to really consider, and I think Jessica Giannotti, who we just mentioned, who's using seaweed and algae to create dyes, she raised this with me. She's like, who's thinking about putting a framework around how we work with these natural materials that haven't been cultivated yet? I think in the case of algae-based material, 
if that's being done in the open ocean, which well, we've already got mussel farms on ropes and stuff like that and, and, and farming of fish, and there's real attendant problems with overdoing it on, on that scale. So, of course, it's a huge consideration because you don't just want to go, oh, it's a great biomaterial. I'm just going to go and intensively farm seaweed now because it will affect the rest of the ecosystem. Yeah. I think it's our relationship with how we extract things and how intensively we manage those systems. Now, a lot of the, for example, mycelium and spider silk or bacterial dye are grown in lab. In control conditions. In control yeah. conditions. So you've got a whole other raft of materials that are yeah. you know, created I mean, in that way. You think it when you look at the bark cloth, could we create a trend that might inadvertently tip these ecologically balanced yeah. systems into... Yeah. the opposite, right? No, I mean, I mean that, that's it, a really interesting question. And I think, yeah, there would have to be controls. It's like you you would say, if you're going to claim to be sustainable, you actually have to demonstrate that the, the forests from which this material has been taken are being controlled and watched in the same way as the Piruku. You're not just fishing it into extinction because it's glamorous and gorgeous, but it's actually being controlled by an outside programme. It definitely requires us to think before we leap on the supposedly next big sustainability thing, doesn't it? It really does. And I think a good example of that is, again, two bark-based And you'll remember Flavia Amadou from, oh, yes. also from Brazil. Her whole PhD project was around researching the potential for looking after the forests, which would provide natural latex, the communities around that, the communities being custodians of this those This is in forests, Brazil, in the Amazon. In Brazil, and, and making sure that, you know, it's controlled latex you're taking, so you have to leave it to grow back. And you have to look after those trees or they won't give you any more latex. So there's a real kind of inherent understanding of you really have to look after those forests like it's gold because they're providing your livelihood. It's the same with cork. So in Portugal, for example, they take the cork off the tree and again, they have to leave it for a period of time to grow back. It will naturally grow back and then they can return. So they have, they're really having to be careful about how they manage that process. Otherwise it's gone. Earlier, I was saying that there are questions around how we use the word innovation. And of course, more questions surround that word sustainable. Which is why I think so many in the world of sustainability are saying the word is meaningless now. And also so many people didn't really know what it meant. It's encompassing all of these interrelated issues, social, historical, ecological, financial, cultural, all interwoven. So it's highly complex to sort of say, oh, that's a sustainable material. So now we're talking much more, and I know you've spoken to Nina before about the word regenerative. So we're kind of surfacing that much more that we, we don't just want to be letting things carry on the way they are. We want to be repairing, restoring, and regenerating all systems and primarily natural because we've got a biodiversity and climate crisis that really is a crisis. So whatever we do, we want to always keep that as a, you know, at the forefront of our minds and obviously hugely important, the social component as well. And so I think that kind of in, in defining sustainability, it's still very, very nebulous. But maybe in answering your question, perhaps it might help. We used to talk a few years ago about preferred fibres. So what would be if you now? if you had yeah well textile exchanges sort of really tightening up on that they used to use that word quite a lot and and people were kind of understanding it well, if it's a preferred it's better but we've we've run out of time we've got to get to best 
so now we speak about best practice. Where can we go to best practice? That should be the question. What can I, what should I be choosing or buying or using that, that represents the best practice I can get right now for my needs currently? How do you choose then? As an organisation, we're making qualitative choices, not quantitative. So we, you know, we haven't got figures on a lot of this. We, we're doing this by reaching out to as many different suppliers globally as possible and looking at how that particular supplier operates, what all of their initiatives are from a sustainability perspective, and what the material represents. And we're using our judgment to go, wow, this is the best we've seen in this. You but know? What, if you're a person who has the responsibility for making textile choices, yeah. how do you decide? Or as a consumer? Well, in the case of advising brands, which obviously we do a lot of, we'll work with their brief because they may have a particular fibre category or material category that they're interested in really improving. And then we can show them various different examples from various different suppliers and we can give them the transparent but information on it. I feel like that's a Future Fabrics Expo answer. Mm, what about yeah. for not that? So I guess what I'm getting at is because there's so much complexity in this, how do you decide? You're saying we're aiming now for best, not just preferred, not just a bit better. Yeah. But how do we decide that? Is it about your values plus performance plus cost or what? Like, how do you figure yeah, that stuff out? Yeah, yes, it is really interesting. And obviously it's down to whoever's on the receiving end. I mean, obviously, if you're a Max Mara producer or customer, you can kind of identify, well, I'm investing in this particular fibre because this represents true luxury and longevity to me so I can do that. And oh, by the way, I'm going to do something really creative with the waste that comes out of it and I'm going to create a, an exceptionally beautiful product out of the waste that creates a fantastic story that the consumer can kind of go, that's great, I don't want to wear live plucked goose feathers in my jacket. And that's really luxurious and also really warm. So it's all of those things together. We're playing, it comes around to the conversation that we were having about tactility and joy and appreciation and the, the sort of materials that embrace us. Plus, where do your values lie? Where do you want to place your money and your, what are you happy with supporting, you know? All right, we've run out of time, but I would love you just to close by answering potentially quite a hard question, but in a short way. What does the future materials landscape look like to you with a positive lens? Mm, absolutely. My wish list. Okay. Well, obviously, no petrochemicals. The only petrochemicals coming from those that are recovered pollution, so ocean plastics, etc. So we'll have a category of materials that is from those sources. And we'll also really, really be focusing on thinking about uh, the material relationship of naturally grown fibres to the natural world and managing that responsibly. So all of the, the ones that we've just spoken about. So it would only be uh, organic cottons. It would be trying to proliferate those other cellulose fibres like bast fibres so that includes linen, hemp, nettle, all of these fibres that we just don't really use anymore. We used to use centuries ago, but they need to come up to, to contribute to that true diversification of the fibre basket. So that'll be another section. And of course, we love animal fibres as well. But again, they have to be responsibly managed. So all of these programmes that assure that and are responsibly managing livestock in relationship to agricultural uh, land as well. We tend to separate and we tend to intensify, which is no good for either. So it's about understanding the relationship of the animal to agricultural systems and how they benefit each other. So only fibres that come from those sources 
and obviously optimizing waste. We've got a hell of a lot of pollution, whether it be through our manufacturing of clothing, pre-consumer, post-consumer, every bit of waste, using that in really creative, surprising, ingenious ways, and a full diversification of the fiber basket that looks the opposite of the one that we just that we just so, okay. uh, looked at. I'm looking at a pie chart here and one percent represents wool and other yeah. protein-based fibres. And as we talked about, most of it is synthetics with a big old chunk of cotton. Exactly. So and 1% of poly. <laughs> 1% of poly. And obviously what we want to be welcoming as well is the world of biofabricated materials that we spoke about before, but any, that's in R&D and obviously subject to investment. But that represents another kind of uh, positive way that we can have a relationship with uh, naturally grown materials. Checking your labels. This has been so fun. I could ask you a bazillion questions. <laughs> Thank you very much for sharing your insights with us. So welcome. It's a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram, at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you Because I love you